the first four chapters of Numbers, uh, I would say, gives us a lot of ideals. Uh, we, we've learned about layers of holiness, right? We've learned how, how holiness has to do with like sin and morals, but it also has to do with curse and that we live in a fallen world, such that issues of death and disease, God doesn't want close to his holiness. So it's, it's not just immorality, it's also just the idea of the curse. So the, both the cause of the curse and the curse itself, God is, is too high and lifted up for that. There's, he wants separation, and if you, you have his, you know, the holy of holies, the holy place, the, the, the tabernacle, the Levites, and then the, then the camp as, as a whole, you got these layers of holiness and you got outside the camp, right? I mean, and so there's... Um, God, in essence, is he's, he's here, he's dwelling with his world, but he's also very much saying, listen, I do not want to dwell either with sin or the curse. Both of those, are, I just, no. Uh, and so we, we also learn from this that the only place where we can truly have eternal fellowship with the God of the universe is when the curse is lifted and sin is completely dealt with. And those are in the cross and then also in our glorification, the new heavens, new earth, those kind of things are the ideals. Um, A lot of times when we think about Christianity, we're only dealing with this portion of it, the moral side of it. And so we get to the Old Testament and we start hearing them deal with the, the curse side of it. It just is like, why is that even in there? I don't even understand that. It's just confusing um, and it, it took me a while to kind of work through all that. And we're not done. As we go through this uh, next chapter, you're going to see, uh, uh, try to wrap your mind around what's happening in chapter 5. But I think we have a God who is not only an idealist, because that's who he is, perfect in holiness, but he knows how to deal with the reality he, and, and practical. It's just life is the way it is, right? And so... Uh, this is a part of that God being transcendent and God being imminent. He's with us. So there's these, these um, in my thinking, as I've gone through Scripture, um, those are like basic principles that help me understand everything. So I don't want, when I'm dealing with the realities of life, I don't want to like overcome and get rid of the de- the ideals. That wouldn't be right because God is idealist. He's not a... He's not going to just compromise who he is because of the practical realities. At the same time, his ideals can't keep him from actually dealing with the reality, all right? And you'll see this in Scripture. So um, that's where we are today, Um, Numbers chapter 5. Let's see. Got a mic back there? Give that to Ryan. Let him read 1 through 4. I think we're on chapter 5, 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they should put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge or everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Okay, generally speaking, 
What's God's, uh, what's his command, what's his rule here in uh, verses 2 and 3? Generally speaking, don't be real specific, just what's he want to have happen? Get the unclean out, right? If you're, if you're unclean, you got to get them out here. Because you can only have clean inside the camp. And you have to understand, he is not just focusing on this. Of course, sin would make you unclean. But he's also focusing on this, because what does he actually give about, um, well, first off, why is it, un, why should the unclean be here rather than here? He gives the reason. They don't want to defile, they don't want the whole camp to become unclean, Right? And if the whole camp becomes unclean, what's the problem with that? God can't be there because he says, this is the camp in the midst of which I dwell. Right? So if God is pure and holy and untainted by anything that's, that's wrong, um, that, that, that needs to be outside of the camp because if, if it's in the camp with him, he's going to, you know, he can't be existing with that which is unclean. As long as you understand unclean as being more than just sin, but it also has this, because the examples that he gives, what are the examples that he gives? Yeah. (laughs) Contact with the dead, right? And you think, well, isn't it it a good thing to care for your dead? You know, somebody's got to do it. Right? And so uh, you have to start asking, why would God not want any contact with death? It's a part of the fall. Right? It also is a reminder of the death that's going to occur in Christ. Right? Because when Christ dies, he's going to be unclean. Right? And God's putting him away. He's cursing his own son. And so this idea of, of connection with death... if if the Israelites began to think that death was natural, what kind of implications would occur from that? Just think about that. You'd live for this life only? No hope for eternal life? Or you might even just think, how do I, how do I say this? So, when you see death, what does it remind you of? What should it remind you of? Mortality, but the, the fall, it reminds you of sin. It reminds you that there's a curse on this world, that death is not natural. So every Israelite, every time they saw death, they weren't supposed to become a friend of death. What does our society tell you? Oh, it's just natural part of life. It's a cycle of life. It's just natural. Things die, born, they die. That's just, that's the way it is. An Israelite could not think that because they understood that if you're connected to death, that makes you unclean. You're outside of the camp. Oh, death is not good. See how God is so purposeful in reminding his people that death is not a good thing because they want death to be lifted. Okay, so I would, I would agree with that, but uh, 
that's not, it's like, yeah, like if this is the circle of meaning, the center is right here. God just hates death because it's a part of the curse. It might have an extraneous purpose over here that it's less healthy, but that's not the point of the text. And I think a lot of times people read in the Old Testament, oh, it's all about health. And God is for health, but the fact of the matter is there is, there is sickness and disease. Now, could God prevent his people from having disease? If he wanted to, sure he could. And yet, when the disease, disease is nothing else than a, a, a precursor to death. It shows that this world is not all that it should be. Now, the reality is, every one of us is imperfect in some way. You have moles. <laughs> you know, you, you have things that are just imperfections about you. And so God has to teach the principle but he can't be so extreme in the principle because everybody would be out all the time, right? So he's trying to teach them that this curse is a bad thing. It's a temporary thing. And among his people, he's going to lift it, okay? Um, now, think about for a moment, there were, there were temporal things and there were permanent things. So if you had a, a temporal thing, like, say, a discharge, maybe that's uh, a woman's menstruation period. We'll talk about that later. But, uh, or it's just um, some kind of oozing skin disease or something that's going on. You have a discharge in some way. That's usually temporal. It's going to be fixed. It's not going to be something that's going to be ongoing. And even many of the diseases might be temporal. If you go in the book of Leviticus, they talk about when the disease is gone, how do you become clean again and enter back into the camp. But some diseases were permanent. Now think about being this person throughout your whole life. How would you feel? You're an outcast. And you're not an outcast because of the prejudice of the people around you. You're an outcast by the command of God. How hard would that be? That's true. The leprosy camp, that's right. Yeah. What would it be like to... Okay, you and I believe that you don't have to be in this building to worship God. You can worship God in your heart, through the word, through prayer, anywhere. So certainly these guys could do that, but they were never allowed to come into the worship of God. Lonely, wouldn't it? Now, I think a, I think a test is, can happen here. They could go one of two ways. right? They could, they could continue to act in faith, or they could just act in unbelief, in rebellion, right? So if they act in unbelief, they get bitter at the God who keeps them out of the camp, right? And who can blame them, right? So, so they, they, they disassociate themselves from the people of God. We don't belong. Therefore, I will be my own people. And people today that, that have um, 
one form of disability or another. I'll get you, Deb. Uh, maybe it's blindness or deafness or, um, you know, maybe it's leprosy. They almost form their own separate community because they just don't belong, right? Go ahead, Deb. Well, that's the question. Well, that's what you'd be asking. So if, you, if, if it led you to unbelief, then you're just, we're done. How, I, I can't worship a God who keeps me outside of the camp. But what would it look like for these people to continue to have faith? What would that look like? They minister to one another, so there's love between one another. This is... That, right, does it mean that the promise... See, this is the question. Does it mean that the promise is now void? Because the promise is that those who are in Abraham, who are looking forward to the promise, will have the fullness of the promise. And yet they're continuing to deal with a disease that keeps them out of the camp. So, so they're feeling, I think, in a more acute way than the person who's actually able to go to the temple every day. They're pro- the people that can go to the temple and worship, they're probably thinking, yep, yeah, we're good, I'm good. But these guys are thinking, what's wrong with me? Can God love me? Which is exactly the, if you get to the New Testament and you understand this, that what did the Pharisees think? Oh, we're not diseased prod. We're, we're healthy. God loves us. We go into the temple. We're the holy ones. And here's Jesus going around to lepers and, and people who have discharges, and he's touching them, and he's healing them, and they hated it. Okay? So this is why I think that uh, it, these people can, I, I, Debbie, to answer your question, I do not think that they are not a part of God's people. But all of the visible prompts that encourage you that you're a part of God's people have been ripped away. And so all you have left is the promise. Can God love me? Will his promise be full in my life? And they, if they cling to it, they, uh, in essence, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Right? Yes. People treat him different, mm-hmm. and uh, even though he's a, a loving person, and he, you know he does the best he can, but yes. he's still different. That's and right. He knows it. And what he needs to know, and this is the thing: it looks like God is treating him um, as if he's only outcast. But I would say that the person who's dealing with this lifelong disability is—they're the ones that can say, "My only hope." is that God reverse it all. He has to love me as I am today. He has to come to me in my wretchedness, my my brokenness. But then he also has to have the hope of a resurrection because you can't have the full hope right now. Right? I mean, you are driven to the resurrection body. And I think God, this is exactly what he wants for his people. Now we, because we're sinful, twist it around. These guys think they got it good. 
these guys are feeling like they're, you know, <laughs> and so they just, they look down upon them. And there's things in the New Testament, like, do you remember when the Tower of Siloam falls on like 18 people and they die in the New Testament? And people say, man, those guys were really bad for that thing to happen to God. And Jesus says, they're not any bit, uh, worse than you. <laughs> you better repent, you know. So, um, but I think if, we, if, Jesus, if God doesn't have this mindset of putting out those who are unclean, you would, we would begin to think that disease and death are just a natural part of life, and that's the worst possible thing that could happen. And it's happening in our, our day to day. People are told to not fear death, to not see it as a part of the curse, right? And I, almost unanimously, the non-Christian world looks at death as a release. That's not the way God wants it to be seen. Now, if you, if you flee to Christ, the stinger of death is removed, right? But it's not, death itself, itself is still the last enemy, when Jesus is going to heal Lazarus and raise him from the tomb, it is, he is not only weeping for Lazarus' pain and the pain of Mary and Martha, he is also agitated in his heart because he is, this is like seeing one of his chosen endure the pains and suffering of death makes him mad, angry. Okay? <clears throat> obedience of God's laws would help them to look forward <laughs> and see that, um, you know. Keep going, I'm God, listening. God is going to be faithful. We, I have the sign of the covenant, um, and he's given me these things to do um, that shows that he is good and that he has a plan, and he's told us what to do. Very good. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, in, I, I, yeah, it easier in the level of dealing with the real issue, which is pride, because it has ripped out your pride. Um, unbelievers you're constantly having to defend your faith yes yep no i it, it, once you understand this you just like oh man you have such compassion for those people who are outcasts is that not what god wants us to do yes The man of the house is outside the camp, and the mother and the children are inside the camp. And what if she is not? I mean, it, yeah, no. I mean, just there's so many implications. There are so many the implications. Effect is just yes, tragic, well, really. It is. It is, and this is why I think when you get to the New Testament in, in 1 Corinthians uh, six, I think or seven, um, when they're when they're like, okay. I'm living with an unbeliever. Does that make me perpetually unclean? Should I get out of the house? And, and you know, Paul says, no, 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 stay. You're actually making them clean. 
So it's like this different principle that's going on in the New Testament than what's going on in the Old Testament. Uh, but it only makes sense in this kind of thinking. If you don't think this way, uh, you just it's hard to understand a lot of passages of Scripture. Yeah. Uh, there would have been probably some kind of, depending on the, depending on the disease, like if it was leprosy or something, it, they would have been separated. I mean, you might have got to see each other some, but you, you wouldn't. Watch what I'm saying. If she would have gone to her husband, who's, who's outside the camp, having contact with someone who is unclean would make you unclean, not permanently, but for a season. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a season in that. And one of the, I, I did death and disease, but I think sex is a part of this too. Uh, the discharge might not be a, a, like a disease discharge. It could just be semen or it could be, you know, the idea of having sex. So that, that's not a bad thing. God loves sex and marriage, right? I mean, he's for this. But again, the idea, part of the curse is pain in childbearing. So even... Even sexual activity, which originally was supposed to be perfect and good and not any problems, even that has some ability to make you unclean. In the Muslim world, they still follow this kind of rule. Um, you have, there's certain procedures after having sex that you have to like cleanse yourself before you can do any kind of worship of God and different things. So, but, but I think for us as well that that's a part of trying to figure out that even that which is one of the best things in our life, it's a good thing. God wants you to have this. It has the potential due to the curse as a reminder that the curse is there all the time. Yes, Deb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got COVID. You don't even know it. Uh-huh. Well, of course, they don't have genetics, and they don't understand any of that, so they're, not, they're only going to go by what they can see. Uh, um, and even in, the, in a lot of this, uh, remember, I think God is teaching the lessons to try to help us understand that we live in a fallen world, that yes, there's these ideals, but there's a reality that we live with, and life is just not ideal all the time. Um, So, um, let's keep going, because I think the next thing, uh, these whole unclean, and remember, this is, God has just said, I've got my whole camp, I've just cleansed it, it's all these perfect things, oh, oh, you got some unclean people, you got to get on the outside of the camp, it's just like, it doesn't fit into this great order of, all right, this unit moves out, and then this one comes in. What do you do with the unclean people? Like, where do they come in in the march line? You know, are they at the very end? Or, like, what's happening with them, you know? Um, so just, it, it helps us to see that even though God's an idealist, life is not ideal. All right, so let's go uh, 5 through 10. Uh, who wants to read for me? We'll get the microphone to you. Just raise your hand. I know Mary's already got hers up. There you go. Hey, oh, Gina wants to read. Some people really like reading the scripture, so I like to give you guys a chance to, to do that. I'm not trying to force anybody to do it. but The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, 
When a man or woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he has wronged. But if that person has to has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest along with the ram with which atonement is made for him. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Each man's sacred gifts are his own, but what he gives to the priest will belong to the priest. <clears throat> okay, so this is what we call uh, the whole principle of restitution. Okay, um, and it is it supplements what is in Exodus 22. So if you want to make a, a mark, we don't have to go through all this right now, but Numbers is usually supplemental to things that are in other passages of the Pentateuch, and this is um, um, supplemental to Exodus 22. And so in that, there are things like um, if a beast is loose and it feeds in another man's field, you know, there's all these kind of things that, that could happen because you're living in community, but, but because you live in community, you, you, things, have, you know, uh, happen. Um, and how do you handle those issues? How do you uh, keep their, I would argue, unity and, and harmony among the whole people of God, I think is a lot of this. And um, so when it comes to property, um, and it's interesting because they're in the wilderness, so nobody really has any property, but you do have things that you have, and you have animals and things like that. So um, what are we told here uh, in numbers are some of the principles of restitution? What do you have to do? Yep, so... Yeah, full restitution plus 20%. Okay? Any other observations you see in here? Right? There's, there's confession that has to occur. So you have to realize the guilt of this. Anything more specific about this guilt? Okay, so you have to face the person. Right. So what is this to saying? If you sin against another person, who are you sinning against? Yeah. Do you see how God's teaching this? So restitution is not just between you and that other person. Because you're in the midst of God, every sin against another member of the people is a sin against God. So you have to bring him into this. Other observations? And why should it have to be given to the priest? It's in certain situations. He's kind of dealing with a situation that's a little bit unique here. Because normally I might give restitution to John if I've done something against John. But in this situation, what if whatever happened, 
John died. He's not there to give restitution to. What do you do then? Go to their next of kin. If you can't give it to their next of kin, then you just go directly to the priest. You see how, because it's important that this restitution actually be paid for the, the ideal of God's people, that they're to be a holy people, right? Why 20% more? This is, this, pastors understand this. Have you ever heard me say, um, I don't say it to you guys, but if somebody from like what, outside of the church says, uh, how are things going in the church? I say, well, it's job security. They're still sinning. <laughs> right? And th- what's, who gets this 20%? The priest. He makes a living off of other people's sins. <laughs> so... God's taking care of his people because the, the priests are there to help them with their sin, but they actually get provided for because of that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not gotten deep enough into the Catholic way of thinking to know if that's where they drove some of that. But um, uh, Not enough, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so this is a situation, I think this is the practical situation. It's real. Uh, God wants his people to be holy, but he's a realist, and he knows they're not going to be holy. He knows they're going to hurt each other. He knows they're not going to get everything right, and he provides, because he's a very practical, down-to-earth God, uh, he provides uh, a means by which they can appropriately deal with these things, learning the lessons that they need to learn. Okay? So very practical, relevant issues. Now the next one may be one of the hardest passages in the book of Numbers. So, All right. 11... Through the end of the chapter, we might as well just go ahead and break it up maybe in three sections. Uh, do 11 through 17. Lee, if you'll do that. Uh, 18 through um, 22. Uh, Laura, would you do that? 18 through 22. And then Carrie, would you do 23 through the end of the chapter? Thank you. <clears throat> And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, 
bringing the iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place it in her hands, or place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen. Amen. The priest is to write the curses on the scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. He shall have the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water will enter her and cause bitter suffering. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, Then, when she is made to drink the water that brings a curse, it will go up into her and cause bitter suffering. Her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away, and she will become accused among her people, sorry, accursed. If, however, the woman is not defiled herself and is free from impurity, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. This, then, is the law of jealousy, when a woman goes astray and defiles herself while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife. The priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply his entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. Okay, fun passage of scripture, right? (laughs) Um, But again, as is over and over the, the case, God is wiser than us. He is smarter than us. And the first thing you should do in approaching a text like this is say, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. It doesn't seem very good to me. But uh, is this not anything, this is not just a Salem witch trial. You know, is this not, uh, <laughs> you know, what do they do in the Salem witch trials? If the, if the woman is thrown into the water and she can swim, she's a witch. And therefore needs to be, you know, if she drowns, okay, she wasn't a witch. You know, like, that's great. <laughs> um, that doesn't help, right? <laughs> so uh, we're going to see how God's ways are better than man's ways. So let's follow this through. First off, adultery, if it's done in, like somebody catches you in adultery, 
it was punishable by death for both the, the man and the woman. Okay, that was, that was just, you know, if, but you can obviously, you can say, well, how often do people get caught in the act, right? I mean, so you can have these things where eventually it usually gets found out, but it's, it's not as, uh, not as, it just doesn't happen all the time. So, so then you have this, um, you have a situation where husband begins to feel jealous and he is convinced that his wife has been unfaithful. So let's live in that for a moment. How does this affect the marriage relationship if the husband has been unfaithful and the wife is jealous? Or either way, but really the husband is jealous. How's that going to affect the relationship? It's going to sour it. Not going to be true unity, not going to be true love between them, right? Lack of trust. Um, so you have this. And I think that feelings of jealousy, it, I find this really interesting that God expects it. He expects there to be feelings of jealousy sometimes. Because we live in a fallen world. Husband and wife get in an argument. You know, the wife leaves for a few hours. Where did you go? What did you do? You know, whatever. You know, you get these kind of, these kind of issues. And so we're dealing with um, a, um, a problem that is a very real problem. Now, in a, in a society that is strongly patriarchal, under the suspicion of adultery, the, the husband could, number one, he could make life a living hell for his wife, or he could actually dismiss her. Give her a certificate of divorce. Okay? Not because she's actually done something wrong or actually been truly accused, like uh, proven that she's done, there's no innocent until proven guilty here. He's got these jealous feelings, and he could make life really hard for her. And we see this in our own society today, right? Uh, all you have to do is slander somebody, and it ruins their whole reputation. You can imagine a woman's whole reputation being slandered here, right? So due to the fact that a guy is jealous, he could ruin another person's life. And so God says, mm, that's not the way it's going to happen. I have some specific rules that you need to follow, okay? So what are some of the rules that he, that he follows? I mean, uh, he says... Okay, if you're jealous, husband, he's really, his wife, he's jealous of his wife. Okay, you got to bring him in to the temple, okay, the tabernacle. You bring them in, and the first thing you have to do is you're going to have a test of the woman. Now, you have to understand that this test is entirely different than the Salem witch trial, right? I mean, you're going to drown, you're going to drown. Sometimes they even tied a, like a, like a rock to them, you know, that they would go down. and you know. So the, the test, you have holy water and you have dust from the floor of the tabernacle. Now, just to tell you, in our day where we hate germs and we think that they're the worst enemy in the world, if there were any dust on the face of the planet that was good, it was that at the t- tabernacle, okay? It was holy dust, <laughs> the least connected to the curse, at least symbolically, right? So the point is, you've got holy water and you've got holy dust. This concoction has no damaging effect on a practical level. There's, just, there's nothing wrong with this. You could drink this down, it's not going to hurt you at all, 
okay? It's not like, okay, here, get bit by a, a snake that's poisonous, and then if you live, we think you're okay. This is, this is not that. This is the opposite of that. This, is, this has no uh, possible way of uh, uh, naturally creating problems in the woman's womb, okay? That being said, in the midst of this, there is an oath that is taken. There are sacrifices. All of these sacrifices and offerings and the oath remind the woman that she is connected to a God who sees everything. There's no fooling him. Okay? So she has to to go through this process. She is submitting herself to the judgment of the all-seeing God of the universe. She's willingly doing this. It is like her going to the courtroom and saying, I'll take my, I'll take my um, chances with the judge. I'm not going to settle out of court. I am innocent. I'm going to go do this. Okay? So that's why she has to actually drink the water. She has to say, amen, amen, because she is saying, I am willing to stand before the God who can judge. And if he wants to bring a curse upon me, he can do so. Now, this is a lot of assumption. In our day and age, in our unbelieving age, we're like, right, like God even's going to do something. You know, you're guilty whether he does something or not. This has taken the whole community to say, we trust that we do have a God who sees all in the midst of our camp and he can make a right judgment. You see how it's taking it out of, it's removing everything from the feelings of, of jealousy and it's putting it all upon God to make a right judgment. And the woman is saying, I submit to that. Okay, I'd rather have that than to be judged by my husband who's falsely accusing me of being an adulteress. Okay? So, and this idea of, usually we, they say that this is some condition that prevented pregnancy, that prevented her from being pregnant. Um, we don't know exactly what's happening, but, but the idea is that God himself is acting as this. Now, she goes through this ceremony and there's a, there's a trust by all the people that if she's guilty, this will happen to her. If she's not guilty, nothing will happen. You have to trust that. I mean, you have to believe that God is actually real. He's there in the camp and he can do this stuff. Now, if nothing happens to her, she is clear to guilt. What does that husband have to do? What's his responsibility now? He has to trust and not be jealous. He has to submit to God's judgment on this. Right? He can't go... See, God is trying to get this destructive jealousy out of the camp, out of his people. He doesn't want this to happen. And so he says, okay, there's a way for you to deal with this. Bring it to me. Now, none of this makes sense if God's not actually active in the world. Right? I mean, if there's no, if the spiritual God is not active in the physical realm, then none of this makes sense. It's just like foolish ceremony and stuff. But if you've got a, a people where you see the cloud hovering over the tabernacle, you're like, okay, God's with us. He's making judgments, and so we can trust him. Um, how do I apply that in our day where we don't have such a great uh, um, um, ceremony? I would say the same things apply. Uh, husbands or wives, if you're jealous of your spouse, go to them, talk with them, you know, uh, maybe even um, bring 
elders in or whatever, but you just you talk about it and you try to talk to the, the woman and say, you know, have you been unfaithful? You know, and you know, you realize God, it's like putting your hand on the Bible in court of law. You realize that this is this is an oath that you're taking that you're innocent. And then if that takes place, you gotta not you gotta live by that. You can't just go on living in jealousy the rest of your life. That's not an appropriate thing to do. So you may wait, and then later on, you, it, there's a, a clear catching them in adultery or whatever, but you, can't, you just can't live in the marital relationship with jealousy. That's, I think that's the point. So questions or comments on this? You would be nervous, yeah. Yep. Well, okay, so he 